I've strived to make the artist happy all the time. And as long as the artists are happy, they'll, they'll keep coming back. And welcome to the 32nd episode of Pine Copper Lime, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release an episode every two weeks, and on the off weeks, I publish an article on the Pine Copper Lime website, which features images and maybe a bit more information about the artist I'm going to interview. I am so excited to share this episode with all of you inky fingered lovelies so i'm going to keep this intro real short real sweet couple of quick reminders we do have a patreon with levels starting at just a dollar a month and it's a wonderful way to keep pcl in your hearts and in your ears through this you can pick up some sexy pine copper lime stickers buttons a tote bag or discounts at the online gallery. Link in the show notes. You know the drill. Printmaking forever. Shun the non-believers. My guest this week is Bob Blanton, the founder and master printer at Brandex Editions in New York City. For the past 40 years, Brandex has printed for some of the biggest names in the 20th and 21st centuries in American art, from Helen Frankenthaler to Jeff Koons. They're known for their experimental approach to screen printing, as well as the ability to take on exceptionally large-scale projects. Blanton and the team at Brandex have been pushing both the quality and the technique of the screen printing medium for the last four decades. In this episode, we talk about how Blanton built his now-famous studio, what it's like to take on those ambitious projects, and working with all those big names and big personalities. So sit back, relax, and prepare to be a little starstruck with Bob Blanton. Hi, Bob. How's it going? Very good. Very good. And how are you, Miranda? I'm good. I'm good. I'm really excited to chat with you today. So thank you for, for taking a time to, uh, to, to sit down and, and talk with me. Well, that's my pleasure. Glad to do it. So I know you just sort of by reputation and by reputation of your studio, Brandex Editions, but um, I always start by asking my guests to give just a little description of themselves that I sort of summarize as just who you are, where you are, what you do. Well, I'm, a, I'm originally from Kentucky, and I came to New York in the uh, early 70s to go to graduate school at Pratt Institute to uh, actually get my uh, uh, master's in printmaking. But... Uh, that changed along the way. Mm. Uh, the, the graduate degree changed. I ended up be, being a painting major, and um, that's uh, that's the, the where my education is. I, I started I started uh, college at Western Kentucky University, and uh, I had a very good. I was very lucky. It was a small state school, and I hit a window when they had some extremely good uh, teachers in their art department, and I got a BFA there. Had a, a fabulous uh, printmaking instructor named Ivan Schieferdecker. He was a, stu- a student of Mario Lazansky's at Iowa, mm. and so he taught a very classical approach uh, to printmaking. 
emphasize the quality of the work and uh, being just being very professional about it. So what do you do now in New York then? Well, uh, well, I have my own studio now. Um, and uh, it was actually 73 when I started uh, at Styria Studio, uh-huh. um, printing. Um, it was, was, I guess, maybe the finest uh, screen shop in the in the city at the time. And then uh, they, they were working with uh, Robert Rauschenberg. Bob Rauschenberg brought them to New York from L.A. and just finished a Lichtenstein project and a Warhol project. And... Uh, uh, and I started work there and worked there for about uh, four years, five, almost five years. And um, that's how I really got into professional printmaking. And then after that, I worked uh, kind of a freelance consulting for uh, about a year. And then I started Brand X. Wonderful. And so is that sort of how you came back to printmaking from painting? No, that uh, I was when I was in graduate school, I, I needed to work. And so I... I got the job at at Styria as part of uh, just to support myself as a graduate student. It was I was getting ready to start my second year in graduate school, and I'd been working all summer at Styria doing prints for artists. And when I got back to school, I realized I can't do prints for myself. Mm. It's just I'm working all day in a print studio, and I needed uh, something more direct. And uh, I changed my major to painting at that time. But I continued working full time, or nearly full time, oh, at uh-huh. um, at Styria. So at um, I, I never I never did leave printmaking. I, I stayed gotcha. with it the whole time. Gotcha. Yeah. And then um, when you were growing up in Kentucky, was art a big part of your life? How did you know you were going to to go to art school? From the time I was, uh, I guess, uh, uh, junior high, or or maybe a. A few years before that, I, I realized I wanted to be an artist. My my parents were very supportive of me, and I didn't have any formal classes until, uh, I mean, just part of the school curriculum. I had classes, but then uh, when I about the time I was in ninth grade, I took some outside classes, took some oil painting classes, and such as that, and and and, and kept getting closer, you know, more enriched by creating drawings and paintings. When I got out of high school, I went to Western Kentucky University, and uh, I think because my drawing background was much stronger than my painting background, etchings uh, just seemed to be a more uh, appealing thing mm-hmm. to me at the time mm-hmm. because it was more. It seemed to me closer to drawing uh, than applying paint. And so I, I uh, got to meet uh, uh, Professor Schieffer Decker, and uh, he introduced me to uh, other other mediums of printmaking. That's more or less how I got involved in prints. But you know, I was very, very supportive from the time I was little. I, I would draw with with my grandmother who lived with us. Uh, we would draw together, and uh, I would uh, on rainy days, my friends would come over to the house, and we would uh, all get paper and pencil and draw and uh, and do different things like that. Yeah, what kind of things would you draw? Oh, we'd we'd draw landscapes. We'd draw. You know, this was. Uh, early late fifties, early sixties, we would be drawing battle scenes and uh-huh. you know things that things that little little boys would do. Yeah. You know, so. And then, so if you were you're talking about particularly, you know, etching having that more direct connection to drawing, you know, which was a, a bit of a comfort zone and, and a passion for you, but you ended up going to to screen print. Did that happen in in graduate school, or was that like through Styria? How did that sort of become your life? 
Well, you know, I, I did uh, mostly etchings in undergraduate school, but oh, I guess in my um, in my second year, during during the summers and during school, I was still working a lot. You know, uh, all summers I was working, and during school I would be working uh, part time, and I was doing a lot of construction work, mm-hmm. uh, carpentry work, building houses and uh, apartment, you know, things depending on what the contractor was doing, but. I just realized I didn't want to do that anymore, and I thought, well, what kind of job can I get? What can I apply for? And um, I realized I had some skills at silkscreen because of uh, being introduced to it at school, and I applied for a job at a silkscreen shop mm-hmm. doing uh, uh, T-shirts and signs and banners and things like that. And so I got a commercial exposure to it in undergraduate school. So when I came to New York, my teacher, Ivan, uh, told me told me about studios like this and mm-hmm. uh, uh, like Styria and uh, so I uh, decided to pursue that and I uh, started looking for a silkscreen shop that I could work in because I was just very comfortable printing silkscreens at that to- at that point. Yeah, definitely. And then so you were talking about how you worked there and then you you took a year off. What made you know mm-hmm. that you wanted to start your own shop and that Brand X, you know, had to come into being? Well, I, I, you know, I'd left Styria and I was uh, doing um, uh, work for an artist named Clayton Pond, and then I was also working out of Jim Rosenquist's studio and printing uh, with uh, Susan Hall out of Jim's studio. And um, I was just thinking, I ha- had the feeling that this was not going to last mm. very long for me. That uh, how long can I support myself with this very narrow, you know, setting up studios and artist studios? And I felt like it was uh, for me to. It was important for me just to go ahead and set up my own, take the chance, rent the space, and uh, do it myself, and and use my contacts with uh, like Jim and Clayton and the people I met at Styria to bring clients into the studio and uh, pursue it pursue it on my own that way in a more professional way instead of a, a freelance way. Right. Yes. So how did you go about, you know, actually kind of starting it? Did Was it easy to find a, a space to rent? I mean, this was in New York in 1979, correct? We, yeah, yes, exactly, 1979. Mm-hmm. We, uh, my, I, had a, I had a partner at that time, was, uh, Bill Wygonick, and he and I both looked for a space, and it wasn't that difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we found uh, a, a very reasonably priced uh, space on... Uh, uh, West 27th Street, and uh, which is you know, duh. we were just on the edge of Chelsea at that at that point, not quite in the art district, but a block away from it. And it was a long time before the gallery started moving mm-hmm. into Chelsea. And uh, we f- we found a nice, comfortable space. Uh, another printer, uh, Sheila Marbane, who uh, printed um, silk screens. She she did Andy Warhol's first silk screen mm-hmm. edition. Wow. She had a space in this building, and she called us up and told us that they, we could find a space there. And so we, we found the space, and it was a, a nice, comfortable, much you know, like a, a quarter of the size of what we have now. And, it, and back then, it was affordable. You know, it wasn't yeah. uh, th- things have things have gotten to be, uh, the overhead has gotten to be so serious, it makes it, uh, I don't see how young people can start mm-hmm. start today. But it's, uh, uh, then, then, you know, it was manageable. Yeah, I think that's something that... Um... 
you know, when I talk to people out in the world and printmakers, and a lot of them have that ambition to start their own editioning studio, start their own community shop, something like that. And it just seems like that the ticket to entry is so much, so much more insurmountable than it than it was forty years ago, unfortunately. Yeah, it uh, yeah, it's it's so much more, and you know, somewhere along the line, I guess the well, the late seventies and early eighties, it started changing from. It was a very friendly. Uh, the publishers were doing it because the love of uh, the uh, the medium and wanting to do prints, and the artists would go to their gallery and um, say, let's let's do a print, and mm. the gallery would say, oh, sure, go do a print, and they would facilitate, they'd help out, and you had a lot more fun, a lot, and the, everything was much, the overhead was much lower. Everything was just a lot more relaxed and fun, mm-hmm. and now the uh, the overhead, and, the, and it's become an industry, too. Every, every print that you pull is worth so much more now than it was uh, when I started. Every, everything has a price tag on it, and it becomes uh, much more problematic uh, uh, to do it. And it's, it's taken some of the fun out of it. It's gotten yeah. so much more serious. Uh, the the aesthetic challenges, technical challenges, are still there, which are greatly satisfying. But uh, the re- the relationship with the artist and the galleries is so much different. It was you know much more casual. It was say it was harder to get paid by the publishers back Mm -hmm. then but you but you had a lot more fun doing it a a very different atmosphere now yeah what do you think accounts for that that shift that happened i i think that um, people recognizing the the value of the of these prints that they could really be making money Mm -hmm. uh, off of them and everything and it was kind of a natural progression of the of the medium you know it uh Tanya Grossman and Universal started back in the 50s selling uh, Jasper Johns prints for $50. Right. Well, they'd do a small edition of 30, 40, you know, for uh, for 50 for $50 a piece. Now those same prints are priceless. I don't even right. I don't I don't even want to venture like what the value <laughs> of one of those early prints would be. Yeah. So it's um people understood the started seeing the value of prints and they became a real commodity instead of Bob Rauschenberg doing it out of love and mm-hmm. wanting to do an addition, just wanting wanting to wanting to create a multiple image. And uh, now every you know everything was counted and uh, uh, documentations were very important at that time. And you know the, there was uh, I'm not trying to diminish the value of what was being done, mm-hmm. then, but uh, I think the marketing and people understanding that it's an industry. And it became one. Um, one of the one of the big things I think that uh, helped do this was uh, the advent of uh, the tax shelters in the in the 70s, which created a lot of studios. There were a lot of printmaking studios mm-hmm. because the government was subsidizing huge tax shelters to create prints. It brought a whole different um, group of people into the uh, industry. And I think that was one of the things that pushed it uh, to be more of a more of a business than uh, than a pursuit of of, uh, of good art. When you say tax shelters, like I'm having like a bit of a memory of hearing about that and actually how it did change some of contemporary art making. But 
I'm sorry, I can't exactly remember what, what it is. The um, tax shelters, um, it was a, around 74, 75, something like that. There were, uh, you know, there's always been tax shelters for real estate. You're developing a piece of property and the, the government was, says, well, okay, if you develop uh, this piece of property for business at this place, we'll give you, uh, for every dollar you invest, we'll, give, we'll let you write off a $2 or $3, something like that, mm-hmm. uh, on your taxes. The film industry has always worked on uh, tax shelters. Well, the uh, the clever uh, clever accountants managed to get it so that there was a, a big tax write-off to get investors to put in money to produce editions uh, wow. by artists where they would uh, invest the money, they invest a, a big lump of money, say $10,000 or $100,000 into this. And for that year, if if they show that at least all the plates and or screens and positives and everything have been made, they get to write it off for that year. Yeah. And they get to write off a multiple. I'm not sure what that multiple was, but they would get to write off, you know, if they invested a, a $10,000, they get to write off $20,000 right. or $30,000 or, or, or more. I don't, I don't know what that multiple was on their taxes. So there's a lot of people that would be uh, wanting to shelter some money, yeah. would invest in this way. And in the end, they would get their tax write-off, plus they would have an addition of prints to sell. So it produced a lot of work, a lot of work. Uh, uh, so many, There were many studios uh, set up uh, that were just doing tax shelter work. And that lasted for, I don't know, less than 10 years, I guess, mm-hmm. five, six, seven years. Brandex had, had only one project of that, of that nature, uh, we just kind of avoided it, uh, uh, but we had we had worked with Marisol at uh, at Styria, and she got in touch with us to do a project, and we did that one, and uh, and that was the only one that we got involved in. That's really interesting because I like I said when you were talking about it, I was like, oh, I feel like I've heard this come up before. It's such an interesting part of of that history. And, and, you know, was the tax shelter, was it specific to, to New York state or was this something that affected the whole country? That's a good question, but I think it was pretty much uh, the whole country. Yeah, I think it was a, I think it was a federal tax shelter that they were working with and not, you know, for your federal tax and not necessarily New York state tax, but I could be, I could be wrong on that. So kind of just like going back to those early first couple years of Brand X, you mentioned a little bit mm-hmm. about going to a gallery and saying, hey, you know, you represent this artist, we'd like to do an edition with them, is sort of what it sounded mm-hmm. like. Is that sort of generally how you got in contact with artists? Obviously, you had some connections to begin with, but approaching a new artist, was it generally done through their gallery? Uh, well, we did it both ways. If, mm-hmm. uh, well, a new artist, uh, we would, well, we would try to do However, we could personally make a personal contact. If um, Jim Rosenquist, who was a, a close friend at the time, if there was somebody that uh, we would let it be known that we need work and he would steer people our way, mm-hmm. or we would uh, uh, go to uh, a gallery. We didn't. We very rarely asked uh, for a specific artist. Uh, in the early years, we were really scrambling and trying to uh, work with uh, 
was whoever we could mm-hmm. at the time. And uh, uh, we would talk to, uh, we talked to Brooke Alexander, uh, lengthy conversations with him. He helped us out. Uh, there, there was a, a Marie Sanchez is a, a, a another printer who uh, was uh, helping us. Uh, he's a little bit older than me and he, he was helping us a lot. There's a, a good community. One of the things that helped helped us the most was that Styria had a great reputation in, uh, uh, for doing uh, quality work, quality silk screens, and um, people knew that we came from Styria, mm-hmm. and so they they would work with us. But we would talk to the artist, and we would talk to uh, to the gallery. You know, it's um, so much of it in the early years. It just we were just trying to promote ourselves, but so much of it uh, just happened naturally and mm. uh, we were, we were working uh, very hard to try to get more work in but if say we talked to Brooke it might be a year or so before Brooke would bring in a uh, a project for us yeah um, and so just by staying out there it would lay the groundwork to to bring in future work but for the immediate media stuff it was uh, pretty slim at times but we we had enough work to keep us going yeah yeah, Petersburg Press. They haven't been around for some time, but they were very important at the, when we started the studio. They were uh, doing uh, large prints by uh, David Hockney and uh, Roy Lichtenstein, and uh, they called us and asked us if we could do big prints. And uh, we sure, you know, we can do big prints. And so uh, we did. We we did that, and we got a reputation for doing. Uh, uh, large prints uh, with Petersburg Press and Frank Stella was doing a huge project with Petersburg Press and uh, Alan Christia in London. They ended up uh, coming our way and we did two big uh, uh, Frank Stella projects uh, that were oversized prints. Uh, mm. And it all j- it just kind of happened organically. And once we got pigeonholed for doing big prints, <laughs> now we we have uh, a, a lot of big prints to do. Right a lot that. of big prints. I bet. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you would um when you would talk to artists or find someone to work with, would they know exactly what you were talking about? Would they be familiar with the auditioning process, with with silkscreen, with with what that entails or was it more of a learning curve? Oh, there was a it was a learning curve. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, most of the artists um had no idea of, hmm. of how silk screens are done. And uh, we would set up with them and tell them, uh, uh, you know, if they were drawing their positives, we'd tell them, uh, draw everything that you want blue, right? <laughs> and then they would do that, and then we would take the positives and correct and and uh, and go and go to the screens and do it. But we would have spend a lot of time uh, just sitting down and uh, talking with the artist and looking at their work and getting a feel for their work. And uh, mo- most of them, do, you know, they're, they're involved in what they're supposed to be doing, making art. And and uh, not the technical side of things so much. Uh, they would know that they want to do uh, a, a print, and somebody said, "Well, why don't you do a silk screen?" And they would come to us, and mm-hmm. they would have no idea. You know, they would have no idea which side of the screen the ink goes on. You know, <laughs> yeah. so, we would we would talk about stuff, and they would tell us what they want. And sometimes uh, it would be pretty direct, and we'd know what to do. And other times we'd have to. Uh, come up with techniques and processes and, and figure it out because the artist just, you know, d- didn't have 20 years of experience to do something and uh, wouldn't know how difficult something would be or how easy it could be. 
it's, it's, that's part of the real collaborative process. Uh, the artist is in charge of the aesthetics and, uh, and, and the art, and we're, we're in charge of making sure that it gets um, translated in the, in the proper way onto the paper, metal, whatever we're printing on. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you're speaking a bit to the, the collaborative process because that's really something that I'm very keen to hear more about because, you know, you're working in big prints with big names <laughs> and it's, it's, you know, you've spoken to it a little bit, but I'm kind of just curious about, like, if you know you're going into to a project, kind of what's, what's your mindset? Like, how do you prepare? Do you, do you have guidelines? Is each artist really different to work with? Like, what's the actual, that process like? Well, you know artists, and you know that each artist is, is very unique. People, you know, an artist would come into the studio and say, hey, can you show me something like mine? Well, well no, because nobody else does something like you. Mm. And you would be, you would be uh, annoyed with me if I showed you, oh, this is exactly like what you do, because uh-huh. all artists are unique. Yeah. Um, and so you spend a, a lot of time um, just getting to know the artist and working with them. I've worked with artists where they describe a color to me, and they'll be telling me, how to mix a color in the way they would do it with their oil paint, which colors to combine and, and put together to, to make that, make that color. And I would say, great. Okay. And I go to my palette and I'd mix the color and come back. We print it and you go, okay, that's great. How'd you do it? And I would have done it very differently than the way he told me because silkscreen pigments are different than oil painting pigments. But by him telling me how he would do it, I would understand what type of quality he wants to that color, mm. whether it's transparent or like a, a grayed out version of the color, or if he wants a vivid. And I would know what, what types of colors to combine to do it. So you have to listen to the artist and understand what they're trying to get, not so much what they're saying. You know, this, many of these artists are just, you know, amazing painters. I've worked with some really great artists, but not all of them are very good communicators. Yeah. And so you have to learn how to talk to them and learn how to understand them and keep your eyes and your ears open and be receptive to them and understand that they're the master. They know what they're doing. They know what their art's supposed to look like. They're the ones in the museums. So my job is to make sure that their their work is represented faithfully when it comes to the print. So I have to talk to them and communicate and figure it out what they're trying to say to me. That's a really interesting way of putting it. It almost sounds like you're a translator. Exactly. It's uh, we're taking what they're what they're talking about their uh, experience and putting it into a medium that they're not familiar with for the most part. The collaborative process, you know, we're, we're never just reproducing a piece of artwork. We're trying to work with the artist and, and get the spirit of what, uh, what they're trying to do as much as we're trying to capture that image and reproduce it. If it's going to be reproduced, you might as well do a digital photograph yeah. or uh, a big C-print. Uh, we're trying to do something that, that gives it the, the yeah. same feeling and, and beauty and surface as the, uh, as the artist's work. Like working working with uh, Chuck Close, um, he very rarely says, make that color that color. He'll say that this relationship between these colors are not right. Mm. Uh, we need to do this, or, or the relationship in this quadrant um, that has, you know, say, 30 colors in it. 
needs to be adjusted and we need to just do you know do something to it so we listen to him and talk and understand what he's saying he uh, will um worry very much about how the mark looks we can't make it we can't draw a mark that looks like my mark it has to look like his mark mm-hmm. uh on on the piece to make it work and and every and every artist is different the things that are important to him are extremely different uh uh to do uh, we do a lot of work with Cause, uh, mm-hmm. which is uh, there's a big show in Australia now there that just is. opened up at the yeah. museum down in yeah. Melbourne, yeah. Uh, and the the suite of prints that uh, have for sale there are ones we we just finished and signed them last month and oh, sent them really? down there. But Brian really demands that the the colors be ex- exact. I mean, really, really uh, matched. The edges be perfect and the surface be perfect. And he's very demanding. He does mm-hmm. not compromise on it. He'll see things. He he sees things that I I I, I don't ever see, and I say, oh yeah, okay, you know, and I buy it, and we go back to the studio and we, we work on it, and we we get it more the way he wants it. And that type of artist who who really knows what he wants, even if it's like almost impossible demands, like very precise. I want it like this. I don't want it almost like that. I want it like mm-hmm. this. There are many ways to the easiest people to work for it's uh, the the ones that really don't know what they want they keep you up in the air that you're, you're constantly guessing they present a different problem they may accept things a little bit looser but we don't ever know we don't have a firm idea of what what we're heading towards i could definitely see that i, I think that sometimes people you know through movies or something like that you know they they get this idea of you know working with an exacting precise demanding artist is just this this emotional trial and that kind of thing but I could completely see that as the collaborative printmaker having someone who knows what they want and can express it directly even if it takes more time and a little more elbow grease there'd be a relief in that it, it makes it so much easier there's a uh, we worked with Helen Frankenthaler for years and I can remember the, the first time I, I uh, was taking a proof to her. I'd heard um, horror stories about her <laughs> in studios. It was just awful. And I was uh, sitting there in her studio. She was a few minutes late because she, had just, she was just getting back from her dentist where she had a root canal. And I'm going, oh, no. What am I going to do, right? And she comes in, and uh, we look at the work. We talk a good conversation. She tells me what she likes and what she doesn't like, and I go off and change it. But she was always direct and knew exactly what she wanted, and we had a great relationship because she was she was the master. She she knows how her work is supposed to be. And so we would make it make it the way she wants it, not the way we want it, the way mm-hmm. she wants it. And we, we had a great relationship uh, mm-hmm. because of that. Never had a moment of trouble with her. Oh, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm just sort of like thinking about this, you know, working with with artists that, you know, perhaps printmaking and particularly silkscreen isn't their primary media that they work in. I was just sort of curious about, do you think that this idea that some pieces need to be done in print, you know, that some pieces just need to be silkscreens and sort of why that might be? I hadn't I hadn't ever thought about that until uh, uh, until today, mm-hmm. uh, when I you know you, you gave me a, a little bit of heads up of what what we're going to be talking about and mm-hmm. thinking about a painter's work like Chuck's 
it doesn't it, there's there's not a a, a a real need his aesthetic does not say make me a silk screen mm-hmm. do yeah. this right brian on the other hand uh, with his hard edge work for cause mm-hmm. he fits right into the um silkscreen mode of working and it's almost it makes more sense to do them as silk screens than it does as paintings because because we can make those edges and control those edges so much easier his paintings are, are, are beautiful i was looking at them yesterday and uh, i can't believe he doesn't mask the edges they just hand paint them really? and they're beautiful and and wonderfully done and uh, so his work just says do me as a silkscreen we're working with a, um, another artist, Adam Pendleton, who um, we're printing one, two, three layers of, of black um, onto uh, onto different surfaces, and we do uh, a lot of work on the on a mylar that he likes to work on, and because of the surface that he wants, and um, these could be done. You could you could put them through a digital printer, mm-hmm. right? And you would get a facsimile of what we're doing. You get something that'd be flatter, that, that wouldn't be as rich. But the way he way he wants his surface and everything to look, they have to be silkscreen. Yeah. It really is a, it really is necessary to make them silkscreen. The uh, it's the hard edge Robert Indiana, who we've done a lot of work with, is uh, so so natural with uh, with the silkscreen process. Um, it works. You know, we uh, when I started the business uh, and, and working at Steria and started the business, the silkscreen method has come a long way since then. But at that time, people were in love with lithos. Yeah. And they kept saying, can, can you make your inks look like litho? Can you do this to make it look like litho? And we would work so hard <laughs> to uh, either get the crayon uh, look and, and, this, and uh, that type of effect in our screens. In the, in the intervening years, the... Uh, the technology for the uh, silkscreen processes have improved so much that we've done um, three, four, five prints with Via Selman's, her, her beautiful graphite drawings that look, that look more like drawings than lithos mm-hmm. of her work would. Um, so it's, um, but it doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, her work does not say make me a silkscreen. Yeah. It, uh, it takes a great deal of effort to make her as a silkscreen. Plus, Indiana's work, Robert Indiana's work, is just a direct translation from his painting to his screens, to his edition prints. When you were talking about the fact that you were being asked to make a silkscreen look like a litho at some point, um, and that you've got artists with these really specific ideas they'll come in with, it's, you know, Brandex is known for not only working large, but also being experimental and and pushing the boundaries of what silkscreen can do. And I'm just curious if there's any particularly difficult or exciting or just standout projects kind of within that realm over the last 40 years that, that you could speak to. Well, I'll, I'll list a few for here, yeah, then you okay. tell me if they're... Uh, <laughs> we, um, we did uh, some big Jeff Koons uh, sculptures, uh, flat pieces, where he, he would do... Um, uh, a balloon animal. Uh, the first ones were a, uh, a bunny, a balloon bunny that was nine feet tall and um, five feet wide that uh, would be uh, out of cut steel, the shape shaped like the balloon bunny. And we would print his the image photographically onto the plate. And uh, we, we really were running into um, 
size limitations for the uh, how to make the screens. Uh, we were making some of the biggest screens that uh, well that most people had ever seen. I don't I've never seen bigger. But I'm okay. not saying that some some I'm going to, if I said that the biggest screens ever made, somebody's going to call you and say, "Hey, look, no, these are bigger." <laughs> uh, but uh, they, you know, the, these were huge screens that we were printing uh, uh, something almost 10 feet long and five feet wide with. And we end up doing uh, balloon monkeys with the with the tail extending off of it. Mm. Uh, it was ten, almost 10 feet high by 10 feet wide. And we would have to, and the tail would be halfway down one side. So when we're printing it, we print by hand everything, the yeah. big things. And so you, there's one person on either side of the screen with holding the squeegee and pushing the squeegee and and you would walk the length of the screen right well in this case there was a tail halfway down so you couldn't walk through it mm-hmm. so we were having to walk down uh, steve sanjanero who was at stereo with me would be walking and he would come down to where the tail was and i would reach across the tail and pick up the squeegee and apply the same pressure that steve is without stopping to continue the pass of the uh, of it, so that there would be a continuous. If you slowed down uh, too much, or you stopped, or the pressure changed, you'd see a line right. where the squeegee uh, changed. Well, he started in 1977 when he started printing, and I was a few years ahead of him. So you can see he, he has over 40 years of experience. So we had nearly a hundred years of experience of <laughs> printing silk screens on that side of the table. So that type of, you know, the the size and scale and the exactitude that Jeff demands made those very, very demanding, difficult uh, projects. We're doing um, uh, projects right now with Rashid Johnson, where we're hand coloring the prints. We're printing a um, resist. We print the negative shape. We're printing that. It's a black and white image. So we're printing the the negative shape white to seal the paper and doing multiple layers of that. And then we're coming back on top of that with a modeling paste and some, uh, I think, graphite in it, graphite powder and uh, black pigment. Uh, we're covering the whole sheet with that, like you would an etching plate, mm-hmm. and then wiping it off and leaving a buildup of and where the paper is exposed and not covered with ink. It, it gets the black on it, and it wipes off the resist. And... You, uh, it's very, very difficult. And one of my printers, uh, uh, James Miller, is uh, is in charge of that project and doing that. And I had here's another Styria alumni. I hired him in 1978. So three Styria printers there, and uh, with a lot of experience. And uh, so that's a very challenging uh, project. The the Stella, uh, the, the, I think it was the Had Gaja series, and. Uh, Moby Dick, I think, is the second one that we did series. Very involved, where there was uh, in Stella Studio, they were printing lithos and uh, linoleum prints. We were doing silkscreen, and then we the layers were being cut out and put together. Lots of collage work. There was even marbled paper on those. Uh, uh-huh. Very involved, and you know the collaging part took nearly as long as the as the printing part uh, to get to get done on those. And those were additioned as well. Yeah, they were additioned as well. They were they were done um, mid '80s, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I would I would say mid '80s to maybe 1990, something like that. It was it was a, a big uh, Waddington out of England with uh, Petersburg Press, I believe, published those. 
Uh, mm. It was it was a nice series. Um, th- those those are some innovative things that yeah. we were doing. Like the, the, the as far as demanding, you know, quality demanding work, the uh, the cause work that we're doing now. My two printers that are were putting those together, uh, uh, Alex Mercedes and Roberto Mercedes, uh, are uh, have, just, have just pushed the uh, limit on uh, surface and edge quality, and uh, um, and they're always good at color. But the surface mm-hmm. and edge quality that Brian wants is really um, difficult. And uh, you know, it's very funny. Uh, they. Uh, the, you know they've been with me a long time. They've been with me to, well, over 20 years. And uh, but we had done big Indiana prints before then. And uh, at the show we're having that big show at Pace right now of the Brand X, uh, mm-hmm. 40 years of Brand X. They were looking at the uh, as a big Indiana print from the uh, Hartley series. It's um, 77 inches by 55 or something. Very big, very big Indiana. And um, uh, Roberto was looking at it a little disdainfully, saying, uh, you, "You wouldn't get by with those edges now." You know? <laughs> so uh, and I, I printed those. He was yeah. uh, he was uh, <laughs> criticizing me a little bit, you know. So. Yeah. Wow. Like listening to you to you talk about it, what's really striking me is that I think printmaking in general, there's a f- real physicality to a lot of it. You know, you think talking about like moving big litho rocks and, and this kind mm-hmm. of thing. But, you know, when you're talking about working on a piece that's 10 feet by 10 feet, that must be such an embodied experience and getting that timing, right. It's, it's like being a dancer, an athlete or something to a certain extent, because it has to be yeah. precise in a physical way. It, it's extremely challenging. It uh, uh, that that project, the, um, the the bunny project, being five foot by ten foot, it, it fit in a a spray booth, you know, where they would spray the sculptures, mm-hmm. in um, and in his studio. And so we went directly to his studio and did it in a nice, clean environment there. Well, he calls us up and says, hey, can you guys do this? And I said, well, let me do some research and find out about the screen material and what we can do and uh, if we can do it. And next thing I know, he called I me mean, like a week later before I call him back, he calls me and says, well, the piece is being delivered. And I go, okay, <laughs> okay. I guess we're, guess we're doing it. Uh, and uh, we, had to, we had to work all this stuff out and we had to build a clean room and we had to go through, you know, uh, really a, a lot of... Uh, preparatory uh, processes to to get it where we want and then you know we just knew it was going to be fi- just so physically challenging uh to do this and i don't know if uh I, I don't know if i would have trusted doing it if it was not steve and i on the side of the screen that we had to do the pass on and uh Later on, uh, you know, after the guys, you know, the, the, I have such such good printers there. After they saw that you know, what we were doing and could get into it, well, uh, maybe I would be unavailable for the afternoon. And I couldn't be there. Well, they went ahead and did it themselves, and they, sure enough, they could do it. And uh, it, it was uh, to, for us, you know, that's that's pushing the parameters. It's Steve will be uh, he's working on a uh, he just finished an Alex Katz piece that's. 108 inches long, I think, is the image, and it's uh, 42, 44 inches wide, a long, narrow image. And he would uh, be talking to me and uh, telling me about uh, the problems he's having with 
with this happening, the surface of the ink doing this, and and you know I would I would tell him I say Steve, you know look, you know silkscreen was never meant to be this big. It's supposed <laughs> to be like the you know you print the front of a T-shirt or something yeah. like that. You know that, uh, and so we're all we're not only do are we having problems incurring um, issues of like satisfying the artist, we're coming into issues that just the medium was never designed to do. Yeah. That's such an interesting point. Yeah, but you're really kind of like making the aspect of the medium kind of bend over backwards while playing the piano a bit. Yeah, yeah exactly. We're, 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 other people do it too, so I can't say that we're pioneers in breaking new ground because other people are printing big things too. But it does uh, cause uh, real issues in, the, in these. Yeah, and I can I can just imagine, you know, when you're when you're going to be pulling, let's say, like the first one, and you've got, a, you know, a, a huge, huge sheet of paper. I mean, it's it's just that I just I'm just imagining this moment where I mean, what do you say? Would you just kind of say like, it's now or never? Like like light a candle to the silkscreen saint or <laughs> like. No. Oh yeah, yeah. Now it's you know it's uh, let's say on the on the Alex's, you know say we need we need uh, seventy prints when we're finished, seventy prints to sign uh, for the publisher, and so we would run a hundred sheets of paper. So mm-hmm. if you lose one, you don't worry about it, right? You, yeah. you know you, you've run, you know what you're going to do, so you have thirty pieces of paper you can lose. But say on the Jeff Coons, there was one piece of metal, and we had to print it perfect mm-hmm. every time we printed it and if it didn't work out we would have to wash it off and start mm-hmm. again and say there on on these last ones on these uh, uh, monkeys there was say 25 different uh, printing some much more difficult than others some that would be real problems and others that would be pretty much i mean you'd have to try to mess them up but uh Every time we'd pull them, see, we would get 15 colors into it and be pulling one of those difficult prints, and it just wouldn't work. You know, there or there, we would print it perfectly, and there'd be a piece of dust in the ink, mm-hmm. and we would have to decide to clean it off and start over again. And there, Jeff, Jeff is very demanding too. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he, they look at everything, and they, they do not want piece, they don't want one piece of dust. They do not want any flaws. And Jeff, one of his, uh, like maybe his mantra, he'll look at you and say, do you think you can do it better? Uh, and uh, and I have found that, you know, sometimes I would say, yeah, I think we can. And when, we, when we've done it as many times we think we, uh, I can do it and it's not going to get any better, I'll say, no, nope, I don't think so. And Jeff says, okay, you know. Oh, interesting. He, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, there again, he's one of those people who demands a lot and, and he's very clear about what he wants. So you do it, and, and, when, and when you've when you've hit that quality limit that you think is that is there, he he, he accepts it. You know, mm-hmm. he'll go with it. Yeah, and it almost seems like that's sort of the best of both worlds: is that you've got someone who knows what they want, you've got someone who's pushing you, but they also believe you when when you say this is it, like this is the absolute best. Exactly. Exactly. Now there's. You know, there's many examples of uh, of where at Brand X we could be doing a print for an artist and they approve something that it might be aesthetically, you know, might be the right uh, color, the right, uh, you know, pretty much the right shape and everything going down. Uh, 
but it would not be the quality that I like. Hmm. Um, it just I would be looking at it from a craft point of view, and uh, I'll change it. Hmm. You know, I'll just say no. This is not this is not good enough. And most of my people, most of my people will will come to me and uh, I mean Roberto will show me things about the cause prints that he prints and say, and I can't see it. And he'll say, <laughs> I think we need I think we need to fix this. I'll go okay. You know. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but we. W- the, my printers and I, we push we push our quality limit to make sure that we're happy with it before we show it to an artist, mm-hmm. and then uh, we can be clear and uh, and confident that he's not going to be talking about our part of the job. He's going to be talking about the art part of the job that he needs uh, that needs to be uh, adjusted or changed. Mm. Yeah, that's a really it's a really important distinction, isn't it? When you're when you're showing it yeah. to the artist, that let them, like you were talking about, like let them do their job, being, you know, some of the people who are at the very best at what they do and and doing specifically what they do, specifically their aesthetic, their craft. Just let them live in that space and almost in a way, like make your work a little invisible from its quality. In that moment, yes, exa- exactly, and you know the uh, the quality of the work uh, should be secondary to the uh, uh, to the aesthetic. Mm. You know, pe- people shouldn't be walking. This Rashid, beautiful Rashid Johnson print that we just did, um, not the full color one that's larger. It's it's an, it's a to me it's an amazing print. I love it. It's a a, a great piece. I want people to walk up to it and say, that's a beautiful piece of art. Mm. And, and then second go, and by the way, it's printed really nicely. Too. <laughs> um, and, and if that happens, we've done, we've done a good, we've done a really good job. I feel like this is a, a really good um, bit of a transition into my next question, which was, how do you know when a print is done? We'll, you know, we'll be looking at, uh, at, at an image and, Many times we ha- we have, uh, uh, say, a digital print. An artist will send us a digital print and say, "This is this is the the image that we're working from." But then, you know, we depart from it. We do we do other things with it. But uh, uh, or the, through discussions with the artist, if uh, well, like with Rashid, his stuff is, is very raw, very tough. It's not delicate and pretty, mm-hmm. and we have to capture that spirit in the piece. And if we don't have that spirit in the piece, then it's not finished. And we'll look at it and, you know, we'll say, well, we have all the colors that we think we need in it, but what, what's missing here or what's not doing it? And, you know, we'll we'll say, well, this plate's not complicated enough or, or this place is overcomplicated and it's obscuring this. And we have to go back. And many times we catch it during the proofing process. During When we're, when we're printing and proofing, we we have the philosophy that we, we push the limit of what we can do with the stencil. And then we then we'll stop when we think that we we have enough. We don't go too far with it because we in ninety percent of the work that we do, you can always add something at the end. Yeah. Like with Rashid's piece, this uh, piece we made it tough and raw. We captured the surface qualities, the different uh, you know flat and glossy surfaces and reflective surfaces. But one area. What he he called dirt is like that smudgy drawing type stuff on it. He says this area is not quite dirty enough, but that was that for me that was okay because 
we didn't make it too dirty. And if you said it was too dirty, we may have to go back and reproof everything and change everything and take the chance of not getting there again. We eased up on it. We got to the point where everything was right except this one area. So we could just add something on top and make that work. And many times we'll see it ourselves and say, well, we, we, have to, we have to make this tougher. Like these uh, hand-colored pieces that we're doing for him, uh, we went through um, several proofing stages with it and came up with different um, uh, combinations of the, the modeling paste and the graphite and uh, pigment and, and throwing them out as we're going and, until we got to the point where says, that looks like Rashid. Let's take that one to him. I just showed him an example of another piece of work, and he says, "Yeah, let's let's work with let's let's work with this for this piece." And uh, so, just by our com- my conversations with him and understanding pretty much what he's trying to do, we were able to work pretty much um, without guidance to get something that had the spirit and feel of Rashid's work. Yeah, I feel like that's such a great answer, and speaks so much to your role as the collaborative printmaker, that, mm-hmm. you know, a piece is ready when it has that essence of the artist that you're working with, like sort of inside of it. Right. And it's, it's not about reproduction. Right. You know, it's, uh, if you want a reproduction, you do a photo work type of work on it. Then. But it's about capturing the, the spirit of the piece and what the artist is trying to, the, the, if it's like Helen Frankenthaler, the freedom and color that she's trying to get apart, uh, across. Rashid, you try to get the, the toughness and rawness of his image. Or, or cause, you're, you're trying to make something clean, clean and crisp and, and colorful. So you, you, each, each artist has, it, has its own, and, everybody, and like I said earlier, every artist is different. Every artist is unique. Yeah, and that's that's really makes such an interesting role for you to have as someone whose whose craft is so chameleon like, you know, where where so many artists, particularly artists at the level that you're working with, where they have a very distinctive developed aesthetic. They have theirs, you know, mm-hmm. like a cause is a cause, a coons is a coons, you know, a Frankenthaler mm-hmm. is a Frankenthaler you kind of weave in and out um, getting sort of like little little tastes of, of being a part of that aesthetic for, for mm-hmm. a certain project and then starting back from the beginning and, and relearning something totally new. No, and, and, you know, that's one, of the, that's one of the beautiful things about uh, um, uh, print shops like mine. And this is certainly not unique to, to Brand X, but every project is new and every project is is interesting you're not you're not printing a type on a real estate sign over and over again yeah. for 10 years everyone is is unique and different and about the time you start getting really good at something the project changes and you have to get really good at something else mm-hmm. um, and so it's meeting the artist and uh, understanding their their aesthetic and and figuring out their their problems is what makes the job so interesting. You know, you you have something really fulfilling at the end to see, you know, this beautiful object that you've made, but uh, there's so much more satisfaction to be gotten from uh, all the other steps, from the communication, from uh, the problem solving, uh, all the way through to the end. That being being said, do you have any advice for aspiring collaborative printmakers, people who might be listening to this podcast and, and thinking that 
you know, this, they, they know this is what they want to do is they want to be this, this translator, this conduit, this, this artist who works with artists in this way. Do you have anything, anything that uh, you'd want to share with them? Well, you know, I think one of the, one of the things, I, two things I learned early on uh, at Styria really shaped uh, how the studio, how the studio uh, works. And, and I've said this earlier uh, in our discussion uh, that the artist is correct. The artist knows what they want. Uh, I've seen, uh, I've got, I've had artists come to me and say, "Hey, I was working with this printmaker or that printmaker, and uh, they didn't like the the color blue I was doing on this print, and they changed it, and I uh, I couldn't accept the print." Mm-hmm. You know, it's the artist is correct. They know what they're doing, and if you can get out get yourself out of the way and let let your skill as a printmaker uh come through you'll be you'll be successful it's when you try to start imposing your aesthetic and you, and your judgment on somebody else's artwork that it becomes uh, a problem for you the uh, the other piece of advice i got was uh from another printer that he said the the artist and the publishers don't want to hear how hard it's going to be to do the print <laughs> They just want to know that you can do it. <laughs> I think that's that sounds yeah. <laughs> and, and you know they, they tell you, oh, I'm going to do this this way. I want to get this effect and this effect and this effect. And you go, oh, sure, we can do that, no problem. And then after they leave, you may be banging your head against the wall to try to figure out how to do it. But that's not their problem. That's your problem. Mm-hmm. Your you know their their problem is to. To make the the um, artist is to make the the piece of artwork as beautiful as he can, and the publisher is to pay for it all, and they they don't need to know how how hard it is. You can charge them for it, but they don't need to. <laughs> you don't need to ex- explain it to them or, or or complain to them like oh you you're making you're making my life too hard. I love that. I almost feel like that that's that's almost good life advice. Like I feel like it could be translated to so many other parts of of human interaction as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 uh, So so those two things, you know, the artist is the artist knows what they're doing and uh, just stay out of their way. You know, let let them have as much freedom as as they can have. Yeah, that's that's really wonderful. So I know you've got um, an exhibition on right now at Pace, which I'm sure is is Mm -hmm. really nice. But Anything else that's that's kind of making the future seem bright at the moment? One of the things that I'm doing that you know, the being in being in business for 40 years has uh, made me feel extremely lucky and uh, fortunate. There's not many other print shops that can uh, independent print shops like me that uh, can say they've been in business uh, that long and been successful and had the um, the quality of the artist uh, come through that we have. And so uh, part of the, the, my celebration for the 40 years is I've put together a portfolio of uh, eight artists uh, mm-hmm. that uh, we're going to donate all the funds to uh, uh, arts education oh, once, you know, once, once it sells. And, um, and so in preparation for that, I've set up the, the Brandex Foundation that all the proceeds will be going into that, and then it will become uh, um, used uh, in a um, philanthropic way. And that's uh, Brand X will keep going, 
and Brand X uh, Foundation will be, I think, will be the next step. That's amazing. Oh, I love that. You know, when you were saying mm -hmm. that that Brand X has been around for for forty years and it's an incredible accomplishment, and I was wondering if if you could kind of point to why you think Brand X has been so successful or why you think it's made made it 40 years, if there's something that, a, a key to that or, or any, any thoughts you have on why, why you've gotten to be, have this successful decades that you have had. Well, my, my, uh, my wife said, don't forget to say, talk about your persistence. I've gone through well the recession after recession. You know, mm -hmm. it, uh, things go up and things go down. I've had to move the studio. We're in our fourth space, and I've always tried to just make sure that the quality of the studio stays up, is not compromised at all. Mm. And by concentrating on my craft and the quality, I I feel that 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 keeps having quality work coming in. You know, I'm a business, and um, I have to worry about money all the time. Yeah. But that is not the, the major pursuit of the business. If if an artist is doing, okay, an art, okay, we've priced a, a, a print to be a 15-color print, and uh, the artist is not, uh, not happy with 15 colors, and... Uh, wants to add another 15 colors to it, make it a 30 color print, which makes it a whole lot more expensive to, you know, costly on on my side to do it. Uh, I'm I'm giving a, um, there's never been this extreme a, a situation, yeah. right? But there's, but the, this is uh, indicative of what, uh, let's say, let's say he wants another five or seven colors on it, and the publisher will not be willing to pay for that. Well, I just tell the artist, let's do it because that's the important thing. Mm -hmm. And you, I've, I've uh, strived to make the artist happy all the time. And as long as the artists are happy, they'll, they'll keep coming back. Alex Katz has been happy with me for 20-some years. <laughs> um, and the la he's working with uh, Robert Lococo out of St. Louis. And when he wanted to do, uh, Robert wanted to do prints with him, Alex told him, I want to use Brand X. And Robert and I had never worked together before. And uh, Robert said, okay, you know, let's use Brand X. Mm -hmm. and, uh, the, but the artist insisted on it. And uh, I'm, there's, there's a lot of artists through the years that have, have done that. So we're going to work with Brand X to do this. And uh, I've kept, you know, you keep the artist happy. You, you, it, it seems to me like the, the, the moral, aesthetic thing to do is make sure that their art is done properly. Uh, if you're going to get into it, if you're not, if you're not going to do the best job possible, regardless of whether you're getting getting paid for it or not, then you shouldn't be in the business. Mm -hmm. um, I've done I've done so many jobs where, I go wow, I really mispriced that job, <laughs> and uh, you do a job for you do a job that uh, you mispriced and you're losing money on it. Are, are you going to do it badly? You go cut corners to to do it badly so that not only do you lose money on it but you lose your reputation as a as a good printer mm. uh, you get you get hurt two times instead of just losing money and so i've always tried to maintain that we got to do good work and we'll, we'll worry about them we'll worry about the money later i'm so glad i asked that's such a great answer so thank mm. you you're welcome yeah and thank you so much for 
for having this chat with me. It's been just really, really wonderful and, and thrilling to, to listen to you talk about the experiences you've had, and I really appreciate it. Well, well you're, you're very welcome, and thank you for taking the time to, uh, to do this interview. It's been a great chat, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to having the honor of, of sharing it with, with listeners and, and writing a little piece about you, and um, I really appreciate it. So thank you very much, Paul. Well, 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 uh, and thank you, too. Thank you, Miranda. I really appreciate it, too. Definitely. I'll be in touch. Okay, you take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. Well, that's our show for this week. Join me again in two weeks' time when my guest will be Rona Green. Rona is an Australian artist who makes hand-colored lino cuts. Compositions feature half-human, half-animal creations which explore the nature of identity. We'll talk printmaking, boxing, tattoos, and Egyptian art. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing help from Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you in two weeks. Thank you.